Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I am holed up with my co-host Damien Heath. Hello. And Cameron Crothers. Hey. This month we are wading out the storm with Bogart, Bacall and Robinson as we look back at John Huston's 1948 home invasion thriller Key Largo. Key Largo, a lonely island off the coast of Florida. Sultry, heat-ridden, cloaked in the strange menace of the sea. But stranger still is the destiny that brings these people to this remote outpost. To be held at bay with a price on their lives. By a man with a price on his head. Nothing to stop me from wiping you all out. What good will that do, boss? Forget it. Her kind's a dime a dozen. I say smack her and let it go at that. Smacking her isn't enough for such an insult. He'd have to kill her. Then he'd have to kill the rest of us because we witnessed it. To kill us all or nothing. We rid ourselves of your kind once and for all. You ain't coming back. Who's gonna stop me all there? Filth. You filth. I won't let you go without me. You've got to take me. You've got to. Oh, get You've away got from to. me. I'm a wild cat. Smell blood, huh? Got your appetite up. You can make your hopes come true. But you gotta die for it. See what I'm aiming? Right at your belly. We have a great show lined up for you this month. We're going to, as always, take a historical and analytical look at the film's production history and release. We're also going to be airing our interviews with Professor Leslie Brill of the English and Film Studies Department at Wayne State University. He's also the author of John Huston's Filmmaking. And our interview with Jason Taylor, who runs the Bogey Film Blog website. In 1939, Maxwell Anderson's new play, Key Largo, had its world premiere. In it, a war deserter visiting the family of a fallen comrade is taken hostage in a hotel by a gang of thugs and is given a chance to sacrificially redeem himself. It was a smash hit, lasting 105 performances. Producer Jerry Wall bought the rights to the play and convinced John Huston to direct it. As Huston worked with screenwriter Richard Brooks to adapt the play, he found himself growing frustrated. As a vocal objector to the witch hunt spearheaded by the House of Un-American Activities Committee, which was in full swing at the time, Houston felt that the play was a piece of propaganda written by a war sentimentalist, and he ran the material through a major overhaul. The character of Frank was no longer a deserter of the Loyalist Army, returning from the Spanish Civil War, but a decorated World War II veteran. The gangsters were changed from Mexican banditos to American mobsters, and Anderson's message-heavy denouement was discarded in favour of a more optimistic Hollywood-style ending. Wald fought with Houston so vociferously that Houston inevitably had Wald banned from the set. This was the fourth collaboration between Houston and Bogart, the fifth between Bogart and Robinson, and the fourth collaboration between Bogart and his then-wife Bacall, who were three years into their marriage. Production kicked off in the Warner Studios lot in Los Angeles and lasted 78 days, with very little of the film being shot in Key Largo, and Bacall fondly recalls it being a very happy set. Released on the 16th of June 1948, the film was a hit with critics and a modest box office success. Claire Trevor won the Oscar for her performance as Gay Dawn, and the American Film Institute nominated the film for its top 10 gangster films list. 
What resonates about the film for a modern audience is that, although it is shot like a film noir, Key Largo doesn't contain any of the standard noir tropes. In the place of a hard-boiled private investigator is a disillusioned war veteran, whose trajectory is the inverse of the standard noir protagonist. In place of a femme fatale is a washed-up alcoholic former lounge singer on the brink of total emotional collapse. And instead of belaboring the what-was-it-all-for sentiment reflected in post-World War II noir films that emerged in the 40s and 50s, Key Largo reflects a wiser sentiment, one that would ultimately outlast the despairing nihilism of true noir, that the freedom sorely won in prolonged battle were worth fighting for, however high the cost, and that we must soldier on and hold tight to our faith. Key Largo is in the end not a damning commentary on a post-industrialized age, but a celebration of the principled life, where the forces of good are finally given purchase over the forces of evil. Brutal and stirring, suspenseful and exhilarating, Key Largo is arguably, as David Crow of Den of Geek boldly describes it, the definitive post-war film. watching it this time realized really how good it was and i think uh, what stood out was the performance of edward g robinson i think he's the star in this movie claire trevor as well and it's not so much a bogart and bacall film yeah edward g robinson i think is uh, the star of this movie without him it wouldn't be half the movie that it is i think it's a really fun movie i think that's probably what i would say about most john houston films is they're really fun mm. cameron yeah, um, I don't think it's a noir. I don't know why it's considered a noir, other than the fact that it's in black and white. Like, every single trope in it is not noir. Visually, it's noirish, though. So much of what matters is in shadow rather than in light. Mm. Plus, I think the, you know, the fact that it's a crime film. Yeah. I guess they, they it was the height of noir in 1948, so I guess some things got categorised as noir, which weren't yeah. necessarily that way. It certainly variegates from traditional noir in certain ways, but it still feels like the basic construct is noir. Certainly visually it feels like a noir film to me. I don't know. Like, I think if you compare, like, something like The Third Man to this, the differences both visually and in terms of story and all those tropes, are, like, it's so vast. I like the film. I thought it was fantastic. Um, I I liked the, the setting. I thought it was really, really interesting. You don't see a lot of tropical climates in American film. I know that sounds very strange, but you don't really see that. And uh, yeah, I thought it was unbelievably well acted. I have a bit of contention in terms of whether or not uh, Robinson's performance is the best, I guess. I think every there's not a bad performance in the film. Yeah, and I was really surprised at how captivating the whole film was for the entire, like the entirety of its runtime. It's really, really easy to watch. I love the simplicity of it as well, that there are this you know, two incongruous groups of people and they're together and the storm is boxing them into this room. It's really simple and it's really effective and tense. I know I was talking to you the other night, Luke, and you'd asked if I'd watched the film yet and I was like, yeah, I haven't. I love, like, Bogey's first line in the film because it's the worst line, I think, in the entire film. Like, like I mean, it's fine and whatever, but, like, he's just like, Key Largo. <laughs> like, like, I'm like, okay, we get that it's in Key Largo because you said it the titles come up and then you've shown another sign saying Key Largo after that. I'm like, we get that they're going to Key Largo. Yeah, and actually that recalls the whole thing about, you know, at the end of Chinatown, it's like, forget it, it's Chinatown. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that is, and Chinatown's sort of a modern noir as well. Like, mm. it's 
you know, the idea that there's this place that represents kind of the cynical interior life of the lead character, the disillusioned lead character, where in that place, all of the horrors and cynicism and anger that that person feels about the world kind of plays itself out. And John Huston starring in Chinatown. Yeah. John Huston's, uh, I think, very interesting in that whole family. They were the first three-generation Oscar winners, and I think only Mia Farrow... Uh, no, the Coppolas and uh, Mia Farrow, Woody Allen, right. their family. Um, but uh, John Huston started off as a writer, so he wrote a lot of movies... Uh, in the 30s, and then he got his first directing job when High Sierra was a hit in 1941. And Jack Warner had said that you can do, you can direct a film as long as it's uh, as long as it's a hit. And so he chose The Maltese Falcon, and then after that, he made In This Our Life with Betty Davis. So, and then he went to the war, and he made a bunch of war films, war propaganda films. And there's a documentary series on Netflix called Five Came Back, and it yes. details the. Yeah journey of those directors and it's um john houston john ford george stevens frank capra and william wyler and then uh they say in that series they all came back and made the best film that they'd made which i guess for frank capra he made it's a wonderful life and william wyler made the best years of our lives and john houston made treasure of sierra madre which he won best director for and best screenplay and uh, he was uh, nominated again for Best Director in, at age 79 for Prizzy's Honour, and that's the oldest still, the oldest nominee. Yeah, and he directed his dad, Walter Houston, to an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for Sierra Madre, and he directed his daughter, Angelica Houston, to Best Supporting Actress for Prizzy's Honour. And he directed his son, um, Tony, to the nomination for Best Screenplay for The Dead, which was his last movie. And he's also responsible for Daniel Day Lewis's voice in There Will Be Blood because they modelled that after John Huston as well. <laughs> wow. Which is pretty great. I was surprised when I looked up John Huston's filmography to find that I'd seen 12 of his films. Right. And some of them I never would have guessed would be Huston, particularly Annie, 1982. Yeah. Which I watched to death as a kid. I could see that. I think a lot of great directors went kind of off the rails at the start of the 80s. <laughs> Well, you know, it's considered a good film. Yeah. There's that Sydney Lumet film with Jane Fonda. The, uh, morning After. Morning After. I like The Morning After. That's a good fun movie. I think it's a good fun film, but it is a strong dip in, like, quality. Is that Jeff Bridges? Yeah. Jane Fonda's performance is better than the movie. She's oh. so good as an alcoholic in it, and the film itself is kind of middling. I love yeah. the ending of it, though, the violent ending. But Where he's like drought, trying to drown her in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, the Maltese Falcon and the African Queen, the Misfits, Prizzy's Honor. Yeah. The African Falcon was good. <sighs> Moving on. I watched the African Queen last night and I absolutely loved it. I've watched it several times throughout my life, but last night I felt like I was watching it for the first time. I was just so engaged. I was so into it. I think it's a better film than Key Largo. It is. It's his best film, I think. Yeah. And my favourite Bogart was always Casablanca until I think I revisited them both a couple of years ago and made a top 20 list and then it became The African Queen. Which I think Bogart and Hepburn, best screen couple yeah. The Afri- just to reiterate for listeners who haven't maybe seen The African Queen, that is a biography based on Oprah, isn't it? Okay, Cameron, you're done. Get out. And Truman announced the official surrender. This is a solemn 
but glorious hour. I wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to see this day. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. Let's just talk briefly about uh, America post-war cinema after World War II. It kind of represents a, a very distinct change in the way that Hollywood was was making films uh, because the audience had changed. You know, World War II was miserable and kind of heralded in a new age of stifling conservatism. You know, it dragged on for years. People at home struggle, struggled with grief over their fallen sons. They withstood po- poverty during the recession. Um, they were grappling with political paranoia. And there was this sort of collective rage that was building about how miserable daily life had become. And movie studios needed to find a way to engage this new audience, this sort of cynical, malcontent audience. Enter film noir. Film noir is defined as a film marked by a mood of pessimism, fatalism and menace. And it was a term coined by French critic Nino Frank in 1946. And its French translation means dark film or black film. Stylistically, noir is a film in which what is seen in shadow becomes more important and emotionally resonant than what is seen in the light. John Huston is one of the first filmmakers who brought this style of filmmaking into vogue with films like The Maltese Falcon and Key Largo. Noir isn't a genre. It influences mood, style, tone, and the film's point of view. And the cliches of noir often centre around a plain-clothes detective who becomes embroiled in a complicated criminal plot that often involves ruthless mobsters, um, an attractive but duplicitous femme fatale, and usually ends in total despair and disillusionment. And they're hard-boiled stories told with an emphatic lack of sentimentality. So going back to what you said, Cameron, about whether or not Key Largo actually qualifies as a film noir. So you can say, okay, stylistically, visually, it looks like a noir because it's black and white, it's got rich blacks, and often what's happening in the black or in, in the silhouette is, uh, is more important than what you're, you're seeing in the light. It's got a dark plot, a criminal plot, um, and there's a real sense of jeopardy, which all noir has. And you've got a cynical protagonist who has surrendered any kind of humanitarian notions and who's totally self-serving. But the ways that it differs from noir is that there's no femme fatale. So Claire Trevor plays someone who may have been a femme fatale about 15 years ago, but now she has none of that self-possessed charisma of a true noir lady, if anything. She does, in this movie, her character does indirectly bring about the downfall of Johnny Rocco by taking his gun. So she does play a kind of femme fatale role in that respect. Although femme fatales usually aid the criminal, not the hero. Yes, So, um, you know, she's kind of pathetic and pitiable. She's got nothing on, you know, like the kind of Marlena Dietrich um, and even like Lauren Bacall in her previous films with Bogart. She's got none of that kind of uh, mysterious cachet. She's just sort of a pathetic character, pitiable, hopeless drug addict kind of character. And the other thing that separates Key Largo from traditional noir is the ending because Bogart doesn't have his cynical attitude about life confirmed in a cynical, tragic ending. Rather, he has an inverse trajectory. His faith is restored and he readopts his own high-minded heroic value system by the end. So this is something that Noir never did. Noir confirmed people's angry, rageful feelings about life. It didn't try to posit that, you know, maybe that was just in the heat of the moment with a little bit of time and wisdom. We would understand that the values that we went to war fighting for were, were, worth, were worth the fight. 
it kind of it, it sees beyond the, the the anger of the moment and looks at what's going to come after that. Uh, I think also it differs because the uh, there's kind of a rejection of sexuality in this mm. movie. So, you know, whereas so much of what happens in those classic noirs is sexual in nature, uh, that's, that's the catalyst for a lot of those actions and it's not even really present. And in fact, Johnny expressly says to to gay that he's got no interest in her even though she's throwing herself at him so although we can't help but think that the unknown things he's whispering into Bacall's ear are sexual yeah and he does he does he does kind of get off on the fact that she slaps him and calls her a wildcat wildcat yeah it's not a classic noir it's not you know double indemnity or something like that but it is definitely a gangster film and also i think it's a romantic drama i think it's a drama like i think it's a solid drama i think definitely if you were to classify it and it's one of those genres that is not really recognized as a genre but i think crime films are a genre yeah and it's a crime film and the sense of um, the fatalism, fatalistic kind of sense that you were talking about is definitely obviously a trope of noir, so there is definitely that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's something I didn't really think about, to be honest. So there was, as I said before, there was It's a Wonderful Life and The Best Years of Our Lives, and The Best Years of Our Lives was released uh, in 1946. It was the highest grossing film since Gone with the Wind, and it won Best Picture over It's a Wonderful Life. So there was this kind of optimistic movie coming out that was about the war, you know, so Key Largo is just another one of those. And like you said, Den of Geek called it the definitive post-war film in an article that wrote last year. And they said, few films at the time expressed with more clarity beyond the past and present and looked into the future of how America must soldier on after the war that was supposed to end wars. After all that death, how could the Johnny Roccos of the world still exist? But for better or worse, Key Largo answers how America should and will be ready for them in the future. And I think John Huston was affected by his time as a filmmaker during the war. And he was directly responsible for getting a lot of this footage and being able to dictate or differentiate right from wrong and show people what was going on, obviously in a propaganda way to an extent, but also, I mean, there's no reason for America to be hiding their involvement in the war. They were dragged into it. So I'm sure he saw it as somewhat of his duty to give Key Largo a bit of an optimistic ending. There's another film that came out the same year as Key Largo in 1948, another post-war film, and it's a completely different take on post-war society and that's Bicycle Thieves which is personally I think the best film ever made and that film is a look at continental European life during the post-war economic depression and specifically a father who gets a job that's dependent upon him having a bike which gets stolen and the difference between having this job and not having it so the difference between having the bike and not having the bike is the ability to feed his family so it's very desperate times and so I think it's really interesting to compare Key Largo and Bicycle Thieves because Key Largo is American Bicycle Thieves is European obviously America had come out and won the war continental Europe especially Italy had not And so there's an optimism in Key Largo that is very American and that is not present in Bicycle Thieves. And taking those two movies, you can just see the different worlds that they were living in the same year. Yeah. Bicycle Thieves as well as a uh, about the the nuclear family. And, you know, it's whereas Key Largo's, um, you know, kind of got this more gung-ho feeling. It's, you know, cops and robbers type story, whereas Bicycle Thieves is very intimate. The sadness of, of post-war life is much more intensely felt in Bicycle Thieves. It targets what that did to just the average man and, and the average woman trying to muddle their way through yeah. life. In, in both movies, they're about 
some kind of desperation and there's a desperation in Key Largo to to bring America back to I guess we can say make America great again (laughs) but that's what it is you know to get through the the, particularly I mean the war was one thing but the Great Depression was another thing where so many people you know lived below the poverty line and couldn't afford to feed their families and that's what happened after the war in Europe for, for so many of those countries and was still happening in Italy I agree with you, though. I think Bicycle Thieves is one of the most stunning films ever made. It's so resonant and so beautiful and unforgettable. Mm-hmm. It's up there with 400 Blues. One of those stories, one of those films that just tells such a modest story, but does it so effectively. Interesting that all three of those movies, so the, the French New Wave you've got there with the 400 Blues, and you've got Italian neorealism with Bicycle Thieves, and you've got American film noir well, the crime genre with Key Largo. They're all very much genre-specific or movement-specific. I think French New Wave happens a few years later than the other two. The other two were kind of a direct result of, of post-war life, whereas French New Wave happened, what, I think in the early 60s? Early like, 60s, but what was 400 Blows 59? Mm. So right around 59 or 60, right around that time. Yeah, but very exciting movements in cinema and gave us some of the greatest films that exist. Yes. <laughs> I just spent that whole time nodding. Um, I, I, I think Bicycle Thieves is one of the best films about bicycle theft that I've seen. Um, I haven't actually... Um, I haven't seen Bicycle Thieves. And 400 <laughs> Blows is one of the best adult films I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that's enough of that. Give me a towel, will you? Yeah. Public enemy, he calls me. Me? We gave him this public all wrapped up with a fancy bow on it. Leslie Brill is the Professor of English and Film Studies at Wayne State University, USA. He has published articles on film, literature, and photography, along with three books on film, The Hitchcock Romance, Crowds, Power, and Transformation in Cinema, and John Huston's Filmmaking. Why did you choose to write about Houston initially? Years ago... In Boulder, where I was then teaching, Boulder, Colorado, at the university there, the local art theater ran a twin bill of Fat City and Wise Blood, neither of which I had ever seen. And I went to it, and I was blown away. It was just two, they are just two extraordinarily beautiful, interesting, and somewhat eccentric movies. And so I started to teach occasionally more Houston films. I was teaching film studies at Colorado. And then I did a course that was half John Houston films and half Alfred Hitchcock films. Uh, I had written, as you may know, a book on Hitchcock's films that Princeton published. Uh, Houston films stood up very, very well against... Uh, Hitchcock's films and I loved them more and more and so that was what led me to write a book about John Huston's films which I I felt had been underappreciated as a total body of work. Uh, I think that Huston has probably directed as many films or more that I would consider masterpieces than almost any other director. Uh, maybe accepting Hitchcock and accepting Akira Kurosawa. There hasn't been a lot written about him. Well, um, yes and no. While he was active, 
he was a celebrity. He was um, really as as big a directorial celebrity as Hitchcock, and um, in some ways more, which is to say coverage of his personal life, which was often spectacular in one or another ways, depending on his many marriages and many liaisons. But in terms of formal analyses, you're quite right. There was not a lot about uh, Houston's films, and, and in particular, some of the ones that I regard as masterpieces that had pretty much been neglected, movies like Wise Blood or The Life and Times of George Roy Bean or Fat City or The Kremlin Letter, which is a devastatingly ironic and difficult to handle emotionally film. Uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye, another great movie. The Night of the Iguana got a lot of attention because of its stars. Freud, uh, a fabulous movie, got very little attention, and so on and so forth. So that was... That was another reason that I chose to write about John Houston. I thought that these movies should be discussed and more attention should be paid them. I've seen a lot of John Houston's work, but I'm, I'm embarrassed to say none of the ones you've mentioned I've seen, I suppose, the more popular films. Uh-huh. Well... I'll have to you get have, onto it. Yes, you have big treats ahead. <laughs> you you mention as well in your in your book about how Houston sort of began doing kind of big commercial studio ventures, and then by the end of his career was was doing independent features, kind of the inverse yeah. of the way a lot of filmmakers their trajectory goes. Why do you think that was in his case? The inverse that you speak of is a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, independent filmmakers becoming studio uh, filmmakers. That that really is has taken place in the last three or four decades, I would say, well before Houston's career began. Mm. There were very few, if any, independent filmmakers back in the 30s when he got involved with Hollywood. And such as there were were almost all avant-garde filmmakers, people um, that Stan Brackage would have called poetic filmmakers. In a way, that was that trajectory was not really possible, or at least was exceedingly uncommon back when he began. The point at which he started moving in that direction, I would say, though it was still, uh, of course, a studio film, was when he did... The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Oh, yes. Um, which, you know, he took on site uh, in Mexico. And that was very uncommon then. It was probably fairly difficult for him to get studio approval of such a venture. But he did, as he often did on eccentric ventures. But, you know, making movies like that and... Uh, the African Queen in Africa began to direct him toward independent production. And as he started doing really offbeat things, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, for example, or Wise Blood, which was an independent projection, he, I think, in part wanted to gain more control over his work and, in part, 
uh, he just had to do them himself because there was no studio interested in doing anything as scary or eccentric, say, as uh, Wise Blood again, which was uh, independently produced. He was approached to do that by a young man and agreed, and the young man raised the money and supervised the production and so on, and Houston directed it. And whether it made money or not, I can't tell you, uh, but it's a wonderful film, and you will have great pleasure in discovering it, I'm sure. One commonality between Houston and Hitchcock is that they uh, they drew from a lot of novels and stories and plays to tell their... Yes, for sure. Yeah, but, but yeah. Um, you mentioned Houston was often a lot more... I don't know if this is the right word, but a lot more faithful. I mean, Hitchcock essentially just took the idea, the central idea, and then would do what he wanted with it. He would kind of turn it Hitchcockian, whereas Houston was a little bit more, um, I guess, conscious of the of the original material. I think that's true. I mean, it's certainly true vis-a-vis Hitchcock, and I think it's true vis-a-vis almost all other directors, with the possible exception of Stanley Kubrick, who was also very, very good at catching both the spirit and retaining the crucial details of the books that he worked from. I think one reason for this is that Houston was, for a director, an unusually talented writer. He began as a writer in the early 30s in Hollywood, working on sort of minor productions like uh, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, which I think is 32 or 33. And he worked his way up to uh, being a principal writer for major productions like High Sierra, which preceded his first directorial effort, The Maltese Falcon. But Houston actually began his career, his artistic career, as a painter, and he soon concluded that he couldn't make a living and support his first wife doing that, though he continued to paint all his life. Mm. Uh, And then as a writer, and he published uh, a half dozen, I believe, short stories in the American Mercury, which was the equivalent back then of the New Yorker today, a popular journal uh, with strong intellectual support, which published essays and the very top writers of the time. And it was astonishing and extraordinary that Houston would begin his career as a writer publishing in the American Mercury. The point I'm getting to, rather circuitously, I'm afraid, is that Houston was a very talented literary person, writer and reader, an ardent reader all his life. Mm. And so he was able to engage writing like the dead for example, or Under the Volcano, two late works, which very, very few directors, if any, could ever manage to translate to the screen. The Dead, because it has apparently virtually no action. Under the Volcano, because it is a a kind of a modernist masterpiece and a, a narrative that's not easily followed in the novel. So, you know, this, this in, in, in not so brief, is why I think Houston was so capable of translating 
difficult works with great fidelity to the screen. It was, it was because he understood them as very talented fellow writer. That's really interesting. I, I didn't know that he, he began as a, as a writer, that he branched out beyond screenplays. And that he was a painter. <laughs> That's yes, astonishing. Those, those, two, those two things preceded his work uh, in Hollywood. One of the uh, themes that you identify, or a current theme, because this there's a whole, uh, I guess, a whole group of uh, people who don't consider Houston an auteur. Right. But you, uh, you, you kind of very skillfully identify a few recurrent themes in his movies, and one of them is the uh, the quest for self or this theme of identity. Uh-huh. Um, I'm wondering if, if in your mind there's a separation, because he explored that theme sort of right up until he died, if there's a separation between how he explored it in the early films as opposed to the later ones. That's a good question. By way of thinking about this out loud, central to Houston's curve his body of work is the idea of death and the way in which his characters think about, confront, or experience death. I think that that part of his thinking, of his characters' quest to understand who they are, appears really quite early in his work and persists right through to the end as the title of The Dead and its contents would suggest. I'm thinking about, in particular, the Red Badge of Courage, where the principal character needs to understand who he is in confronting death twice. The first time, unsuccessfully, when he runs away. The second time, successfully, by his lights, when he leads the charge. Moulin Rouge. Another very great film, by the way, which is totally neglected, ends with what may well be described as the triumphant death of Toulouse-Lautrec, who has in a way always known who he was, but whom the world on his deathbed comes to understand. But I think that part of it persists, and in a way, it probably derives in part from Houston's early biography. As a, as a kid, he was misdiagnosed as having a condition that would lead to his early death. So he lived very early with the idea that he was going to die soon. In his wonderful autobiography, An Open Book, he talks about how one evening he thought, well, the hell with it. If I'm going to die soon, I might as well do what I want to do, even if it's really dangerous. And he snuck out and he rode some dangerous irrigation ditch rapids that he had kind of always wanted to try and not done so because everyone told him it was really dangerous. But since he thought he was going to die soon anyway, why not? And I sort of think that that experience of thinking that he didn't have long to live and his confrontation with it, his discovery that he could confront it and accept it and live his daring life in part because of that acceptance, his confrontation with that, I think, informed much of the theme that you're talking about. That is to say, the discovery by his characters of who they might be, the quest and discovery. Houston said at some point that the outcome 
to our journeys is relatively unimportant. It's the journeys themselves that are important, and that I think is also reflected in his films and in his characters' attempts to find out who they are. I was really pleased to discover that you uh, devoted a chapter of your book to Let There Be Light. A fabulous film. Uh, I saw it a couple of years ago, and I've never forgotten it. No, it's very, very moving. And I have a psychologist friend who teaches developmental psychology uh, in a university near Detroit who makes that film the center or a center of her course in trauma. It's an astonishing film and a film which I think from what I read, the Department of Defense could still learn a great deal. (laughs) I I understand that Houston um, actually made that. Wasn't it initially meant to be sort of a propaganda film for the government? It was. He, he was commissioned to make it with the express intent by the Department of Defense to reassure employers that returning soldiers who had what was then called shell shock and is now called PTSD, to assure them that they were stable and able to perform employment as well as anyone else. So he made this film by way of showing how they were treated and how they recovered explicitly as propaganda for the Department of Defense on behalf of returning soldiers with PTSD. And then the bigwigs in the Department of Defense saw it and mysteriously banned it. They essentially refused to let it be seen by anyone. It was not seen for several decades uh, until the vice president of the U.S., I think in 1980, ordered that it be released. Uh, and Houston, of course, was a little bewildered by this because the, the film does brilliantly what it was asked to do. <laughs> it does. But, but Houston's guess was is that, you know, sort of the hardcore soldiers in the army just didn't even want to confront the idea that soldiers would break up psychologically under the pressure of battle. Mm. Which, by the way, seems to be the case today. Uh, On on yesterday, in newspapers and on our public radio here, there was the release of a study that some 57,000 Army veterans or Armed Service veterans had been dismissed for misconduct in many, many cases, perhaps the majority of cases of those 57,000, the misconduct could probably have been plausibly assigned to their suffering of post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD. So here we are, some, let's see, 44, I think was the date of Let There Be Light, 45 maybe, some 70 years, 70 plus years later, and the army is still unable to come to terms with this problem. It's laughable in a certain way, and in another more obvious way, you know, deeply disquieting. <laughs> it's a great piece of film, and um, I think to, I suppose, a younger generation who've never really experienced a world war, to see the kinds of effects that it had on those men is just staggering. And I think it's made more disturbing by the fact that it's got that really antiquated, plucky narrative running through it. 
and then at the end of the film it's sort of like you know it's kind of zips them all out like and now they're all okay and ready to go back but you get this sort of profound sense that it's it's being a little dressed up yes you're quite right and and in fact there is an explicit voiceover warning at the beginning of the film that these cures uh, only dealt with the immediate effect of battle trauma and that underlying psychological difficulties uh, remain to be dealt with Mm. That's not emphasized, but it is explicitly there early on. Another film related to that one in a, in a certain way is uh, the second of the three films he made for the Department of Defense, um, The Battle of San Pietro, usually just known as San Pietro. That, too, is a, a brilliant film, and it is very, very clear about the folly of war. And, in fact... Probably the closest analog to it in film is Kubrick's Great Paths of Glory, which uh, undertakes the center of which, as at the center of San Pietro, is the idea of a really misguided and doomed frontal attack on a well-placed enemy. So Houston made the, the Battle of San Pietro, and it was promptly banned by the Department of Defense. He made it, of course, at there request. <laughs> That's and crazy. It went, however, finally up to the chief of the army, who I think was Douglas MacArthur. I might be wrong there, but it went it went to the, the very top man who looked at it and unbanned it, saying that soldiers really needed to know what they were going to face. Mm. So that one managed to get shown. Uh, unlike Let There Be Light. And it, it, too, is a very moving. It's ludicrous that the government thought that they could um, hide the fact that war is hell from everybody. Or <laughs> 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 right. well, it's actually kind of fun and, and a, good, <laughs> yeah. a, a good sort of prep school for life, right? I wanted to ask you just, if I could, about Key Largo, what you think of it and, and where you think it stands in, in sort of the Houston canon. Well, Houston himself, in the autobiography, doesn't have a lot to say about Key Largo. What he mainly says is he enjoyed working with the cast. And the cast, in fact, did very well in terms of Oscar nominations and Claire Trevor, right? Yeah. Yeah, she actually won the Oscar that year for Best Supporting Actress. He is cited on the DVD, which I watched recently, as having said that he hated the Maxwell Anderson screenplay. And he was under contract at the time, so he pretty much had to take what he was assigned. He hated the Maxwell Anderson screenplay, which he made major changes to, and he forbade the producer from being on the set. As to my own reaction, I find the performances very impressive. Houston was a great director of actors, in part because he grew up with them, and he watched for several weeks his father rehearsing a Eugene O'Neill play in New York, and I think that that was a major education for him in terms of directing actors. He was, of course, himself an actor, though I don't think he took his acting very seriously. In any event, I'm impressed by that, as I would expect to be. I find the screenplay at this point kind of dated, overly theatrical, despite Houston's attempts to open it up, as good directors usually do with 
things they inherit from the stage. I don't think it's one of his best films, but you know, the fact, it, it's certainly not negligible, and it has great moments. And the fact that at its best, it is so centrally concerned with Bogart characters willing to confront death or not, makes it very much Houstonian, I think. He is confronted with the, the chance to kill Rocco at the cost of his own death, and he rejects that. He says it's not worth dying to get rid of yet another Rocco, where there are plenty of Roccos. And then, confronted with the likelihood that he's going to be killed if he undertakes captaining their boat to Cuba, or the possibility of getting rid of Rocco that way, he accepts it. That, I think, is the most Houstonian thing about the movie, and also the most interesting and moving part for me. And I haven't read the Maxwell Anderson screenplay, but I suspect that Houston pumped up the emphasis on that part of it. What do you think about the film? I'm curious that you would be doing a show about it. Yeah, I um I only saw it for the show. There are three of us who, who uh, run this podcast, so every month two of us pick two films. And then the uh-huh. then the third picks from the four films. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not it's not a it's not a precise science. We don't look at every filmmaker and go. I mean, really, probably to be honest, if I was doing a Houston film, I'd be drawn to do something like um, the African Queen, or even mm-hmm. Let There Be Light, or Prizzy's Honor, even because I love that yeah, film. Yeah, Prizzy's Honor is a wonderfully entertaining film. It's fantastic, um, and I love the cast in that film. But, Speaking um, of great cast, do you know The Misfits? Yes, and that's a that's brilliant a, film. It is. It's a fabulous film. There was a Houston centenary celebration in Ireland some years ago now, and that that was the film that they chose to show on the opening night. At least in Ireland, it is very highly regarded. Yeah, look, I think that's that film has aged so well, and it continues to do so. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, I think it'll be contemporary. It'll feel contemporary for a very long time. Um, but yeah, right. so I mean, I, I did love it though. I, I loved Key Largo. I thought it was just so entertaining and suspenseful, and I loved seeing um, Bogart and Bacall together. And I loved her in it. Yes, she's terrific. She she's kind of, always terrific. Yeah, she's with those eyes. She's sort of the barometer of <laughs> like judgment on Bogart. You can see that when he the scene you you brought up earlier about him putting the gun down and not taking his chance to kill Rocco. He's so burned by how disappointed she is. He doesn't say so, but that's probably one of the main and maybe the main reason that he takes up the gun, as it were, again. And why I suppose he risks dying to give Claire Trevor a drink later. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great moment, isn't it? I love that whole moment and I loved her song. I know that everyone sort of just talks about that, but it really is just really emotional and and stirring, that whole sequence. And Robinson in that moment is just so sadistic, making her get through that song and and it's really awful. It is, but it's it's also very moving at Mm. the same time. That too is something that he does a couple more times in his career. In Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, Robert Mitchum, sings very haltingly and rather off-key a song 
to Deborah Carr, which is interesting because in The Night of the Hunter, Robert Mitchum makes it evident by his performance that he has a great singing voice. But in Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, he sings hesitantly and, as I say, off-key. And then in The Dead, there is that wonderful performance after the wedding or before the wedding, the, the Colichura performance that the old aunt does. Mm. And, you know, her voice is pretty much ruined by age, and her performance, plucky and in a certain degree, kind of pathetic, but that's overwhelmed by how beautiful and moving it ultimately is. And Houston related that in, in, the, in making that film that everyone on the set was in tears at the end of shooting that scene. I think especially it's very striking in a film that was made in 48 or in that era that you have a performance that isn't note perfect and pre-recorded and mimed. So the minute it comes on and the voice is cracking and it's husky and there's all that vulnerability, it's it's very unusual, very striking. It's wonderful. And it's absolutely characteristic of how Houston would direct a scene like that, that is, it is at once pathetic and deeply moving. I love the complexity of that. That's very rare to get a filmmaker that's sort of that talented. Indeed, a friend of mine, um, a notable Hitchcock scholar named Bill Rothman, was down in Mexico for the filming of Under the Volcano. At this time, this is 1984, Houston, and maybe this is still true, Houston was kind of regarded as a, a craftsman who didn't pay all that much attention to his craft. Houston was, they were filming a scene in Under the Volcano, and Houston was sitting in the director's chair, watching it, not saying much of anything. And Rothman watched this for a while, and he was thinking, oh, what they say about Houston is true. He's on the set, but he isn't doing anything. And at a certain point, Houston said, stop now. And he went out, and he spoke briefly with the lead actor. And then he came back and sat down, and they continued. And according to Bill, everything changed. All of a sudden, the performance was energized. It was on the money, where it had been kind of languid and uncertain before. It just doesn't amaze me. Houston was careful with his actors to tell them only what they really needed to hear, not to manipulate their every syllable. Uh, and there's a, a good example of that in both his discussion of the African Queen and... Catherine Hepburn? ...who wrote a book about the filming of the African Queen. And, and both Houston and Hepburn, in different ways, indicate that she was struggling with the part, not being quite clear how she should handle it, until one evening after shooting, Houston approached her and very briefly said to her that she should think of herself as if she were Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> and, you know, as sort of a complex mix of dignity and insecurity and desire to do right. Uh, though he didn't spell that out, saying Eleanor Roosevelt was apparently enough. And after that, her performance was perfect. 
It certainly was. <laughs> she's uh, she's very memorable in that film. Indeed. One uh, one of the things you mentioned in your book as well is uh, how, how notable um, entrances, some of the entrances are for characters in Houston's films. Right. And he remarks on that vis-a-vis the entrance of Edward G. Robinson in Key Largo. That's what I was going to ask you about. Why do you think that sort of became such an iconic, resonant thing from this film? <laughs> well, it's always hard to guess at audience reaction. But it is a very striking shot of him in the bath there. Houston describes it as a turtle in its shell or a sort of monstrous reptile. (laughs) I think that somehow the combination of his vulnerability, I mean, he's after all nude and in the bath, Mm. and his presence and confidence as a sort of you know, big boss man of the criminal world, maybe symbolized by that cigar that he is still smoking even in the bath. And, you know, that again, those two things, that complex sense of meanings simultaneously might be one of the reasons that that so enthralled audiences and became maybe the best known part of the whole film. It's definitely um, very... Uh unexpected kind of ballsy thing to do because you you know you've got this formidable character and yet the very first time we see him he's as you say exposed in this bathtub he still has that kind of dominant air about him but you're right that conflict is really interesting what did you think of houston as an actor you've mentioned that he didn't particularly think much of his his uh, acting work but i i remember always being so struck by him in in chinatown that's his great work Yeah, he's terrific in Chinatown. In little appearances, in other films, he's often pretty good. trying to think of a particularly good example of that. It's well worth noting, of course, that Houston is the lead in Orson Welles' unfinished last picture, The Other Side of the Wind. I didn't know that. Uh, and yes, he is the lead part in that film, which at the moment it looks like is going to be completed. I'm trying to remember who's working on it. A well-known director. I think Peter Bogdanovich is scheduled to complete it. It has a very complicated financial history, and that has kept it in a safe in film cans for many decades now. Yeah. But I believe that I have recently read that that part of it has been cleared up and that Bogdanovich has the funds and the legal authority now to try to complete it. We'll, we'll see, of course, but that would, be, that would be really important. And that does suggest that if Houston didn't take his own acting work very seriously, Orson Welles did. He has some very nice little appearances in movies like The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. My feeling about his acting, and I, and there's a lot I haven't seen, he is on IMDb is like 75 or something acting credits. My impression is that he never screws up and that he rarely does anything all that notable, in part because his parts are usually very small. In Chinatown, his part is 
the major supporting actor part in the movie, and like you, I thought he was very, very good, scary, horrible. So memorably awful. <laughs> yeah. Things came seemed to come quite easily to him. Is that a misconception of mine, though? My God, I think that's true. I, he really seemed to be bigger than life. An interesting and comic example of that was in his making of the Bible in the beginning. Another quite good film that gets no attention, no one seems to remember anymore. He had a wonderful way of working with animals. And there are two things about that film, speaking of things coming easily to him, that stand out. One is that he formed a friendship with a hippopotamus, and he would ask the hippopotamus to open its enormous mouth, and then he would put his head in between its jaws. <laughs> <laughs> but indicating his trust in his pal, the hippo. The other thing is that at some point, he played Noah very nicely, another small part. He played the part of Noah in the part of the film that has to do with the flood and Noah's ark and the animals. And the professional animal trainers just really didn't think they could pull off the scene where he has to lead a line of elephants and lions and tigers and hippos and giraffes and, for all I know, wolverines. I don't think wolverines, <laughs> actually, but, you know, maybe coyotes. He has to lead them into the ark. And professionals more or less seem to agree, as I understand it, that it was not going to be possible to film this. But Houston, in fact, did it. Houston did it himself. He trained those animals and he led them into the ark. And one of the things he says that always amused him when he would watch the movie with audiences is that no one in the audience seemed, there was a, seemed to think there was anything extraordinary about this. Of course, no one leads the animals onto the earth. There it is. There he does it. <laughs> he seemed to have the talents and the energy of several human beings. And, you know, and that energy sometimes went off in directions that were not entirely to his advantage. He was an inveterate gambler, for example, and he wasn't an alcoholic, but he drank an awful lot, probably to the detriment of his health, mm. uh, though he managed to live into his 80s. If what he was able to do wasn't attested to by lots of witnesses, I simply wouldn't have believed it. That scene you mentioned from the Bible, they'd just do it with CGI now. I don't even think they'd try <laughs> to get something like no, that to happen. Would, yeah, it, it would be CGI for sure. It was, you know, it's probably, among other things, it's probably dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what, if, what if a tiger took exception to a lion and they went at it or decided that Houston looked like a tasty morsel, you know, I mean, but there it was, Noah leading all these animals onto the ark and Houston having trained the animals and performing with them. Well, now that I know that he uh, used to put his head inside the mouth of a hippopotamus, I'm adding fearless to the list of uh, <laughs> characteristics. That's right. Just finish by asking if there's uh, anything you're working on at the moment. I have just finished, within the last year, a book on a writer, on a director rather, who's rather in some ways like Houston, an extremely talented maker of movies of such various kinds that he has kind of been neglected as 
possibly an auteur. And, and in fact, my book on him, it's, his name is Stephen Frears. Mm. My book on him is the first in English and the first in 20 years at all. There's being one previous book that was done uh, in French in the middle of his career. But Frears is, I think, like Houston, a great director of actors and a exceedingly versatile maker of films. I was at, at dinner once uh, a few years ago with a colleague from MIT, a young woman who was teaching film there. And she said, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm working on Stephen Frears. And, and she said, well, you know, I haven't, I, I vaguely remember the name, but I don't think I've seen any of his movies. And I said, well, um, how about My Beautiful Laundrette? Yes, I've seen that. How about Sammy and Rosie Get Late? Yes, I've seen that. How about Dangerous Liaisons? Yes. <laughs> you know, and so on, up through High Fidelity and The Queen and uh, Philomena, which was after her time, or after the time I had dinner with her. He is this director who has made movies, you know, as various as, you know, High Fidelity and Dirty Pretty Things and Tamara Drew. Many of the movies are hits. Dangerous Liaisons was an enormous hit, and they don't remember the name of the director. And it's, it's because unlike Hitchcock, who had such a distinctive touch with his films, though I argue that it's more wide-ranging than most people realize, including academic commentators. Or in distinction with Houston, who was such a celebrity because of his off-screen, out-of-the-set life with various stars and starlets and drunken fights with people like Errol Flynn and so on. Unlike those guys, you know, Freer is just quietly with great talent and energy goes about his business. So, you know, I wrote a book about Frears. And <laughs> so far near as I can tell, the difference between writing a book about Frears and flushing one down the toilet is flushing one down the toilet makes more noise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very excited. I, I've always loved Stephen Frears. You know, I can quote entire bits of dialogue from Dangerous Liaisons. I love that I love that um, bit of dialogue where Glenn Close talks about sticking a fork into her, in her hand under the table. <laughs> right. I, I, I think he's brilliant. And I just recently rewatched The Queen. I tried to keep actually up with him for a while. He made a, a film, I think, called, was it called Sherry or Cherry with Michelle Pfeiffer? Routine? Sherry, yeah. No, he's wonderful. Yeah, I'm so excited to hear it. I'll, I'm definitely going to be picking up a copy. Oh, good. Well, you might want to wait until August. The reason is that the paperback is going to be released in August, and the hardcover is preposterously priced. Oh, right. It's like $125 or something. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. It's, it's to try to rip off libraries, basically, and they don't seem to be cooperating. I would love to, to hear insights into Frears' career. And I'm delighted to hear that you keep track of him. And there is a chapter on Cherie in the film, and a, or in the book, rather, and a uh, chapter on Dangerous Liaisons also. And you should definitely watch Philomena. Oh, I've if seen Philomena, and I absolutely love it. I do, too. I, I, I wrote the chapter on Philomena in tears. Yeah, I can't say that that was true of anything else I've ever written. I love that bit where Judy Dench says, um, that's not easy, that was hard for me, when he's just fobbing it off at the end, when she forgives. Indeed, yes. That's the moment yes. that I'll, I remember. It's like a galvanizing moment from that film. Yeah. It is, yeah. 
But then I also love, I, I, I'm waiting for a moment where I get to say to someone, um, why are you talking like that? And then they say, I'm so angry. And then I say, must be exhausting. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you again so much for lending your time. I know it's been a really hectic sort of few weeks for you, so I I can't thank you enough. Well, it's been my pleasure. I thank you in return. All this foolish talk about the Louisa going down the river. What do you mean? I mean, we ain't going to do nothing of the sort. Of course we are. What an absurd idea. What an absurd idea. What an absurd idea. Lady, you got ten absurd ideas for my one. It's interesting that these two movies he made with Bogart so close together. And if you watch African Queen next to Key Largo, it really does show what you said earlier, that Bogart is kind of uh, subservient to Robinson in this Mm. film. African Queen exploits his talents far greater than Key Largo does. You know, Bogart's so much more uh, vivid in the African Queen. Yeah. Did he win the Oscar for African Queen? Yeah. He did, didn't he? And did Hepburn win? She didn't, did she? I don't think she did, because she won for... Lion in Winter. Lion in Winter. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And uh, On Golden Pond? Yeah, On Golden Pond. She only won three, didn't she? Yep. No touch smacking her isn't enough for such an insult. He'd have to kill her. And he'd have to kill the rest of us because we witnessed it. Not just Mr. Temple and me, but all the witnesses. Kill us all or nothing. He needs you and Curly and Angel, so it'll be nothing. I don't think it's Bogart and Bacall's film. And so, I mean, I definitely don't think it's Bacall's film. I think Mm. she's been better in a lot of other stuff that she was in probably even the mirror has two faces <laughs> i think it plays on a lot of uh, the mythology around bogart through the years so he'd started out with gangster movies petrified forest angels with dirty faces the return of dr x and then he started playing roles like the maltese falcon and casablanca to have and have not the big sleep dark passage treasure of sierra madre So compared to most of those films, he's uh, kind of unambiguous in Key Largo. I think he's a much better, more righteous person right off the bat, even though he straddled the line between a gangster and someone trying to do the right thing in all of those other movies. A lot of those other movies ended with Bogart, especially in the 40s, giving up love or lust for the greater good. And Key Largo kind of reverses that. In the end, he gets what you assume is going to be some kind of romance. So I think they did a really good job setting up at the start the loss of George, and I think that's really important that Frank goes there, he has that meeting with them in the office, and he tells the history of George and that he was, you know, one of the greatest people that he'd fought alongside. I think that sets up Frank as a good guy. He's willing to volunteer this information. He's giving something to a family that needs something. She needs to know about her husband. He needs to know about his son. Not only that, but he... Bacall, from letters that she received from George, knows that Frank has reversed the roles yeah. that jo- that George was actually that Frank was actually the hero who saved George. So not so you know he starts out in glowing terms in Bacall's eyes. Not only is he someone who heroic was heroic in war, but also extremely modest and um, letting James Temple believe that his son was the real hero. Yeah, which is I-, I think why when he ultimately disappoints her when he puts the gun down and doesn't take that chance, it's sort of this a crushing disappointment to her. I think she, in the end, she is this moral compass who, and so is the the father, who allow Frank 
to remember that the reasons that they went to war are more important than the life of one person being lost, whether that's him or whether that's George. And that must be difficult to say about your own husband or your own son. So I think that they are this moral compass that kind of help get him to that point. Yeah. Even though I don't think Frank is... I don't buy the whole, you know, Frank is not going to help them, that he's yeah. not going to stick his neck out. That's the other thing. I mean, I think I don't buy the self-centered element of him. I think he's just a serial pragmatist. Like, I think he, I think he's checking out each situation and thinking, well, if this escalates into violence, these people are going to be put in harm's way even further. Like, every decision that he made, I didn't go, oh my God, you're being a pussy. You yeah. know, like, I, I was like, smart move. She obviously brings it to the forefront in terms of, like, I need to act... I will need to act in a more, you know, robust fashion soon. But, like, I, I, I don't buy the fact that he's being unwilling to stick his neck out. I mean, I think a lot of the time he's just trying to... Yeah, I agree. He, he approaches a lot of these things, especially the gun scene, yep. from a cerebral standpoint. Yeah. He's saying, if I do this... <laughs> You know, uh, someone like someone he, who who yeah. shouldn't die is going to die, and ultimately they do anyway. And what and what would he have done then? Like like he would have what shot shot Edward G. Robinson, but then he would have had another shot off, and then there's three other people with guns. That's right, and that's what he's thinking. Yeah, exactly. you know, that's why he says one Johnny Rocco more or less isn't worth dying for. Yeah. I think because a bitch to him to get so angry. <laughs> a lot of it is strategizing and, and making the best decision he can at the time. Something in. Frank has been changed yeah. by war because when she says at the beginning I guess sometimes dying isn't very important Frank gives her this look like yeah like I used to think that but I'm a bit wiser now when we were talking to Jason yeah, and he was like I always watch that film and I'm always curious about whether or not it's Bogart playing the game with the end inside or whether or not he really is conflicted internally there is an ambiguity there to him in, in that respect it's difficult to see past the mythology of Humphrey Bogart, who for years, for, for three or four years, had been the leading good guy in Hollywood. Yeah. It's difficult to see past that sometimes. I mean, you see Edward G. Robinson on the, on the screen and you know he's going to be the villain because that's what he is. Yeah. He's always been a gangster. There's some interesting stuff with how John Huston directed and positioned Bogart, he's always positioned with the family. I mean, his first mm. meeting is with the family. He never accepts the offer of having a drink with the with the gangsters um he's uh, only ever alone with the family he's in, during the moaning low sequence he's sitting with lauren bacall at the table so he's always positioned with you know the the good guys yeah and very rarely shot in close-ups and there's almost whenever we see bogart we can almost always see bacall and that's lovely because bacall's constantly looking at him out of the corner of her eye, watching him, studying him. Uh, so you get a real sense of, I mean, even though these characters, there's not a lot of time to, to set up a, the romantic interest that they have for one another, uh, you sense it all through the whole film because you're yeah. constantly watching Bacall, watching him, him watching Bacall. There's a lot, I think Jason also said this, there's a lot of watching mm. in Key Largo, a lot of people witnessing each other. Well, that goes back to that little clip that you, you and I watched, 433 as well. Which we'll have to post for the listeners. Yeah, we'll I tried to find it when I saw that you'd put it on Letterboxd and I don't know where you got it. It's on Vimeo, uh, so we will provide a link or embed it in the show notes on our website, but it's a five-minute long clip 
of the moaning low sequence with all of the dialogue taken out and so it's been recut just to show the atmosphere so it's set to a piece of music by a composer called john cage called 433 which is that's all i got when i put in youtube i just got all these performances of his music and i was just like this isn't this isn't what i want which is essentially no music it's it's four minutes and 33 seconds of atmosphere Mm. and it's just the the idea of this piece of music if you could call it that is that the sounds of uh, what you hear when there's i guess silence are as interesting and as musical as music that you write so they've they've done that with key lager all of the sounds that are in there of the storm and the glasses and all of this stuff but it's really interesting to watch this clip and you see where the characters eyes go and just their gestures to each other and it's it's done so well it's a new way of looking at the movie luke you mentioned that you don't see a lot of close-ups of bogart in the film and what i did want to mention was the quality of the close-ups when they're actually used they're brilliant this film is so um restrained in in how it's shot it it, there's not a huge amount of uh flash to it but those close-ups of i mean obviously there's that classic um almost overlit when they cut into those close-ups of, of Bacall, which is kind of just a staple of the time. But even the one... The, there's one um, on the the jetty that's leading out, I, I believe, of Bogart. And just the way it's framed is just so beautiful and it's, like, so composed when the rest of the film is um, often at a distance so you just watch the characters move in the space or whatever but for the few that are used are just are, are so artfully done and I think um, the cinematographer's name is Carl Freund. Freund? I think the film is also quite beautiful considering how restrained the action is and, and it is one location but it's just so well done yeah. and I, and especially the, especially the close-ups when they are used I think they're quite beautiful I love the close-up of Curly when we first realise that there's going to be something happening here when the phone rings she's on the phone he's like I'll get that and it, like mm. the way he walks into that close-up uh, immediately it sets oh something's happening here it gives the film this sudden energy sudden fearfulness do you like uh, for lack of a better word because I've forgotten her name do you like Mamacita <laughs> it's Mamacita <laughs> The old, uh, the old Native American yes, on the was, uh, who gets out of the boat <laughs> isn't her face so wrinkled well wrinkled but it's just got ugly. so much it's well it's ugly yes but it's got so much character it does yeah it such it's a, a great face and it is one of those little tidbits that's like really interesting to include in a film that's pretty streamlined in terms of story and the fact that they just bring this person and it kind of adds a little bit of weight to sort of this person has gone through two or three wars and is still optimistic just wants a cigarette comes off a boat yeah face needs to be ironed it's really good major were you with George when he died? Yes. Was he in very much pain? You never knew what hit him. I was afraid he might have suffered. Come down to Dad's room when you're ready, Major. One thing that I love about how Frank and Nora come together is that they know each other without ever having met. Mm, yes because because Nora has you know heard so many stories about Frank from George's letters and Frank has heard so many stories about Nora from George as well and and they know each other because of someone they mutually loved who is gone it's so poignant that they come together in those terms and you know it's probably happened a million times over in World War Two 
you know, where, where men would visit the families of men they loved at war who died to, to offer their families some peace or to honour a promise that was made. Um, and I love that, that Houston m- managed to kind of weave that into the story in such a beautiful way. It's a really yeah. interesting way not to have a lot of useless sort of exposition in terms of, like, Mm. It just cuts out all of the courting scenes. It cuts out any, like, like um, the majority of anything. Uh, well, the code was still well and truly in effect at this point, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, I guess eliminates that issue as well. Yeah. I think really this is, I mean, John Houston is obviously affected by the war. This is a big statement. A lot of this movie is a big statement about the war. Jason Taylor is the author of the Bogey Film Blog, a website dedicated to the films and legacy of Humphrey Bogart. He's also a regular contributor to the Bogey Film Affair podcast. So, uh, Jason, can you tell us sort of when you got interested in in Bogart? My mom was a huge classic film fan, and uh, so she always had it on in the background when I was growing up. But I probably didn't take an interest till late high school, early college, when I... I walked in, she was watching Casablanca, and I sat down and watched it with her and then started asking more questions and then was always a big Bogart fan. It was probably four or five years ago. I had some free time and a little extra cash, and I thought, I'm going to see if I can track down all his films. You know, the first thing I found was it was kind of tricky to find much info besides IMDb, which doesn't go into a lot of detail, especially on some of the minor films. And I just really wanted to, to find a website where they, they kind of talked about each one, and that's where I, I kind of made a mission for the next couple of years to see as many as were possible to see and just write something on them and and talk to people around the world about them and just see what more info I could get on him and his life. So that's kind of the gist of where the website and all that started. Before that, I would just try to fill in a lot of my classic film holes that I'd I'd missed over the years through Netflix and Amazon and all that stuff. It's um, interesting. We're we're really big fans. I don't know. We've just released an episode on Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and we're really big fans of Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And so to come across some of their old movies has been really difficult as well. But, you you know, you find one here and you find one there, and eventually you build up quite a library of some of these movies, but there's some that just feel like they're... I guess possibly lost to time, but the, the the fact that there's been DVD and Blu-ray and streaming now, so many of those are are coming back and giving us the opportunity to see them for the first time. Yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged that they have the the Warner. I don't know if you get it in Australia, the Warner Archive online. Anxiously awaiting for them to start, you know, putting on some more obscure films. Right now, I think they're they're definitely loading up on films that are very popular, but I think that I'm still kind of looking forward to the day where anything you want, you can just click and find online rather than hunting and searching and tracking people down in Canada with illegal DVD sites and just all kinds of weird rabbit holes you have to go down. There's, there's supposedly one Bogart film that's in a, like a museum in, on the East Coast somewhere in the States that I haven't been able to see yet, but fingers crossed someday, one of his like 20-minute long early films, so we'll see. Uh, have you guys seen Three on a Match? No. Uh, that's a good early Betty Davis. Oh, really? It's a good one. It is, it is available on DVD. I, I'm pretty sure you can get it on here in the states on DVD. But it was kind of pricey the first time I had to see it. Now I think they've lowered the price a little bit. But there's always been about 10% of the movies that are available in the US, or 10% of the DVDs available in the US are available in Australia. So it's probably the same. Oh, with, really? Yeah, it's a very low percentage. I mean, it's easy enough to import them, but uh, it is an extra hurdle that we go through to to try to get some of these movies. Deadline USA, one of Bogart's films, you could only get the French version until last year. 
which was a kind of a major pain. I don't, I don't understand how all that, all that works, you know, but then I go to Canada a lot for my job and I turn on their Netflix and they have way better Netflix than we have too. They have, <laughs> I don't, it drives me nuts, but it is what it is. It well, makes Net- it fun. Netflix only started here about a year and a half ago, I think. So we're pretty new to that. But uh, Key Largo is actually one of those movies. I think there's an American and a British and a Spanish version of the Blu-ray. And I think that's about it. So uh, where does Key Largo sit for you, Jason, in terms of, I suppose, the, the films Bogart made with Houston, but also the films he made with Bacol? It's probably not in my top five. I enjoy it a lot. I, I enjoy everything he did with Houston. And part of the fun for me, especially when he worked with John Houston, was, uh, you know, the stories behind the scenes, what, what went into making the film. You know, and he only made, you know, really five films with the call. So, you know, out of all of them, I think this is one where you can, you can really see their chemistry on screen more than I would say most other films, except maybe to have and have not. I don't know where. It's probably in my top ten Bogart films of all time. I don't know if it'd make the top five. I but, you know, it's it's endlessly rewatchable for me. I watched it Friday to get ready for this, and then last night I was just sitting around. I thought, I'm going to watch it again. I, I don't know how I've seen it a couple dozen times probably over the last 30 years. But it's just, it's fun. Yeah, I'm super articulate right now. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I find it very interesting historically in his career, especially since, you know, he a lot of his earliest films were playing second fiddle to, to Edward G. Robinson. And at the end of almost every one of those, Robinson gets to shoot him. You know, this is the first time their roles are truly reversed. I find it really heartwarming to read about this film that, you know, Bogart personally took a lot of care of Robinson on set and, you know, escorted him from his trailer to shooting every day and just, you know, tried to spend a lot of time with him and really um, tried to make this film a a payback for, for how great Robinson was to him early on in his career when a lot of other people didn't think he could you know, break out of that B-level gangster role. And then you add on, you know, a lot of backstage stuff of how much they enjoyed working with Lionel Barrymore and, you know, the, the crazy hijinks that John Houston would use to get people to give him a good scene. And it's definitely one of those films that I think, you know, knowing the history of it and the backstage stuff adds a lot to the viewing. Overall, I think it's, it's, it's a pretty good film. I don't think it's one of Bogart's best. He has a pretty underwritten role, and so does, I think, Bacall. But um, it's definitely a, a film where Edward G. Robinson, I, I kind of think it's his last big role where he got to shine and show just how good of a guy, good of an actor he was. What do you guys think of it? Yeah, I love Key Largo. I think it's um, interesting that it came out the same year as Treasure of the Sierra Madre, obviously, but Treasure of the Sierra Madre was, I guess, a much more critically lauded movie, and so I feel like Key Largo's always played second fiddle to it. Uh, the fact that they both had Bogart and were directed by John Houston and, you know, it was in the middle of their partnership. So, yeah, I feel like Key Largo has always kind of played second fiddle to Treasure of Sierra Madre, even though I personally probably prefer Key Largo. Until just now, so that, you know, Treasure's a, a bigger favourite of mine, but, you know, if, if I'm going to sit and rewatch one, it's probably going to be Key Largo. Yeah. But I think, that's, I think that's just, you know, a lot has to do with the character that Bogart plays in Madre and... And the, the tension and paranoia, and you know, it's not a film you can fall asleep too easily or just you know, sit down and have a few laughs with. But that had to have been a really good year for John Huston because he won awards, or both films won awards. I don't think he won any for Key Largo, but Claire Trevor won for her role. Yeah, um, he, he won the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah, yeah, and uh, his dad won too, I think. Mm, yeah, for a supporting actor. And Houston, um, being so kind of passionately embroiled in that committee, it sort of influenced changes to the play. Is that is that right? 
That's what I've read. Yeah, that. Well, supposedly when he first came in, he, you know, they suspected he didn't even want to do it because he was so upset and he was, you know, getting really angry and making a lot of changes to everything. Um, but I guess that's that's kind of par for the course when working with him that it's kind of turbulent. But you know, and I, I've read that they tried to include a lot more politicized. Uh, you know, moments into the film that, that didn't carry over as well as they thought they would, uh, especially with some of the Native Americans and, you know, maybe trying to frame Edward G. Robinson's, you know, gangster as, as kind of the U.S. government in some way, shape, or form. Um, the ideology, you know, the whole Franklin Delano Roosevelt speech they give about, uh, you know, never going back to the old world and, and getting rid of ancient evils. But, you know, from what I've read, most of the crowd who saw it, most of the critics who saw it, all that went right over their heads and they just saw, you know, a film of a a gangster on the run and an ex-soldier ex, uh, stopping him. So I don't think the film feels particularly like it's um, more like moralizing or, or lecturing. I think you kind of get caught up in the suspense and the entertainment of it. And perhaps those yeah. overtones, they're not as intensely felt as, as they might be or as they are in other films. And I've never read the original play. So I don't know, you know, if the, if the whole, Native American storyline was in there or not, but having read that now, when I rewatch the film, I, I can see that they were maybe trying to shoehorn a little bit in of, you know, we got to look out for the little guys and the minorities, and you know, be careful how we judge everybody who's not middle-aged, white, and male in this country. And but you know, they, they probably could have played that up a little more. It's kind of a, a a pretty minor part to the story at the beginning and the end. So I had watched Key Largo for the first time for this podcast which I'm a bit ashamed to admit. I'm interested to know out of all the Bogart films, what, what, you know, and looking through the films you've done so far, I love the thing and I love Rear Window. Those are, you know, probably two in my top 10 of all time. What, what was it about Key Largo that you chose Key Largo rather than? Yeah. I think we've just always tried to stay away from so many of the, you know, the predictable films from certain directors. So I think Key Largo was just kind of off center enough from, picking something a little bit more obvious. Uh, my, sure. my favourite Bogart movies are Casablanca and The African Queen, and, you know, I'd love sure. to do a podcast on those, but it's just sometimes a little bit more interesting to go to a film that you don't regard quite as highly and to, to sure. look at that one a little bit closer. Do you have a favourite incarnation of Bogart? Did you like the gangster or did you like the kind of disillusioned American who finds sort of self-sacrifice or... I kind of like the ones he made at the end where he was a little... A little of the shine had rubbed off of the hero and he was, you know, had gone through all the, the anti-communism hearings and he, you know, recanted his own stance against it. And I think that plays, you know, kind of starting right around Key Largo to the end of his career that he was just a little bit more bitter and weathered. And I think a lot of his roles come off a little more honest and a little less Hollywood altruistic. I've gotten really fond of Sirico over the last few years. A lot of the films that I've really come to enjoy the most are, are a lot of his early ones that are really hard to find, where he gets to play comedy and he gets to be goofy, where he's playing like the, you know, the really young love interest. I would say, you know, some of his roles before he got famous when they were just trying to figure out who exactly he was have been some of my, my favorites. The one I've probably watched the most since I started this whole thing was uh, like The Return of Dr. X, where he plays the undead zombie doctor just because I think it's so much fun to watch. And there's another one called Swing Your Lady that's about professional wrestling in the Midwest. That's just ridiculous and over the top, and he's a promoter. And uh, Stand In, it was a really tough one to track down with Leslie Howard, where he plays a Hollywood producer. Some of those where you get a lot less menace, a lot less, you know, where you just see him acting. 
in a fairly typical role. I think you get a, probably a truer sense of who he was as a person, just in general, you know, because I'm, I'm guessing he didn't walk around most of the time, you know, with a pistol and a fedora and talking <laughs> tough, even though, you know, a lot of the TV shows and radio shows that I've reviewed for the site, he was, he, he loved playing that up. He loved, you know, putting that role back on for the crowds, but he seemed pretty quiet and shy and had a great sense of humor personally in, in his in his private life. And I think that comes through in a lot of those earlier films uh, before he kind of blew up. But, so I'd say if I, if I sit down to watch Number Fun, it'll be something from the very beginning or the very end of his career, because I think those two sides really show, you know, the difference between, you know, kind of the optimistic, hungry young actor and the bitter weathered, paranoid, full of anger guy at the end. So, Do you think that Bacall was his greatest female screen co-star? She's pretty good. Usually when I watch a classic film, even if I could appreciate how beautiful the actress is on screen, it only takes a quick Google search to see what they look like either now or before they passed away to go. It's kind of hard to get that image out of your mind. <laughs> the first time I watched The Have and Have Not, I was, I, I, I mean, I'm so in love with Lauren Bacall in that film that it's, it's, it's crazy. I'm trying to think of who else, you know, his, his, some of his early films with Betty Davis. I got a pretty big crush on Betty Davis, too. She was pretty fantastic. Uh, there's one, Kit Galahad, three on a match she was pretty amazing in. The Bad Sister, she was a lot of fun. She was very young. So, I, you know, if I had to pick a number two to call, it'd probably be Betty Davis. They're both really strong, and I think they probably needed to be, not to be kind of totally eclipsed by Bogart, because yep. he's such a presence. I'm about halfway through Lauren Bacall's book, and I'm, I'm finding a lot of interesting similarities between the two of them, Davis and Bacall, and how young they started, how bold and confident they would be able to project themselves on screen despite how insecure they felt in real life. They both just had kind of similar acting styles early on and were kind of used in similar ways by the studios and, and just had a chance to break out earlier than I think a lot of actresses do and had longer careers than I think a lot of actresses at that time did. So, Do you have any help with the website or do you pretty much do it yourself? Unless I'm getting like my brother to record something off TCM for me, it's just me right now. So does that mean you've recently I, read um, Catherine Hepburn's book? I did. I read The African Queen, yep. yeah. The, the Making of the African Queen, which was great. Really fun. That's definitely one of my favorite all-time Bogart, probably in the top three that I've watched over and over and over again. But if you want some insight into into just how John Huston works and a ton of insight into the the hazards behind making that film. Like, I, I had no idea until I read that that the leeches in that film were real. Mm -hmm. They used real leeches in The African Queen. And I was like, they, they didn't look real enough on screen for me to care. <laughs> um, but now when I rewatched it, I went, huh, they went quite a ways to make that film. So Yeah, they would never get away with that today. <laughs> no, um, it's pretty amazing how close they all came to permanent illness or dying at different points to get yeah. that film made. So Going back to Key Largo briefly, uh, having watched it, one of the things that struck me was how menacing Edward G. Robinson is in it. One of the most memorable repeated behaviors in that film for me is how he whispers something we don't hear into Bacall's ear. Yeah. That yeah. creeped me out. <laughs> I think this was in uh, the, the Sperber Lacks Bogart bio said that they actually had some lines in the script that the censor said, These, this, you can't say this, this is indecent. And so they, they spent time just trying to figure out, well, what can he say to her that would, that would make her that upset? And I think it was Robinson that finally came up with, can I just whisper something in her ear? And they, they said, well, let's try it. And it, it, it worked fantastic because yeah. I have no idea what he whispered in her ear. But Your imagination times, posits all kinds of horrific things. It lets your imagination yeah. run wild. And because Edward G. Robinson is just so convincing as this sadist, 
at yeah. that point, um, you just, it's absolutely horrifying that you don't hear what he yeah. says. There's a lot of uh, films I watch, especially modern day films where, where, you know, the protagonist will be caught in a situation like in this film. And in my head, I just always go, well, this is where I'd grab the gun or this is where I'd run for the door. Or, this is where I, you know, try to do something to change the situation. And this is definitely a film where I watch it and I just, you just almost feel hopeless the whole time. For, for the, the, the good guys, the heroes in the film, because they, they really do seem trapped. And even though, you know, it's all on a Hollywood soundstage, I, I really appreciated the special effects they did with the hurricane and all that. It's hard to even think about my first viewing, but I, I, I can imagine that somebody seeing it for the first time might not know exactly who's going to come out on top, who's going who's gonna to end up, you know, living through the end, especially if you were a Bogart and Robinson fan through their careers and, and knew how that relationship usually turned out. And, and I guess the original play, Bogart's character dies as well, so they altered for this film. He does a great job of playing so many things so subtly. One of my favorite scenes of his is, is that scene where he is not even talking, where he's just in the bathtub. And it's got to be one of the most unflattering shots of his entire career. And just the lengths that he went to in this film, to, to just he, he did not care whether... You know, he saved any personal face. He let John Huston do whatever John Huston wanted to do to, to make him look like a, just a wretched human being. But yeah, that's definitely one of the highlights of the film. And, and, and to know that they struggled with exactly what to say. It's the, you know, let the, the viewer's imagination do all the work for you. Um, but it would be fun to know. Maybe, maybe the call talks about it at the end of her book. I don't know what he actually said or if he said anything. But Was it disorienting for you uh, to see the call in a virtuous kind of very good girl role after being so familiar with the femme fatale sort of thing she'd been doing in his, in the other films? Or did you make that adjustment smoothly? I always think it's easier to accept her in a role like this. I, you know, I love to have and have not, but you know, she was so, so young at this point that, you know, when I watched the, this is this out of all their films together is the one that reminds me just how young she was, because I think they, they really went out of their way to, to make her look late teens, maybe even early 20s. She just has a really young, innocent look to her when, when her hair is pulled back and she's not wearing a ton of makeup and, and not wearing super fancy clothes. That's a good, that's a good, I should go back through her filmography and just see how many times she played this type of role compared to, you know, the more knowing worldly femme fatale type role. You know, I, I also think this, this was, this isn't a, a a really deep character for her to play either. I mean, there's not a lot for her to do. She does 90% of her acting with her eyes, just, you know, who she's staring at and how she's staring when she's staring, um, which, you know, I, you know, she kind of coined the phrase, the look in Hollywood. I mean, that was her, her trademark is she could look at somebody and you could read all that emotion without her having to say a word. Um, and I think anybody else in this role, it probably would have come off not nearly as well. That she's, she was just very talented at, all right, I'm, I have to stand still and not say a word, but I'm going to do it in a way that you're going to have to look at me the whole time. And you do. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple scenes there that I find really interesting in, when they're all together in a room. This film, the more I watch it, the more I realize John Huston uses staring in multiple scenes in a way that is, I would say, abnormal. That when I rewatch it, it almost works to build tension like who, whoever's about to pop whoever's about to you know do something everybody in the room is intently staring at them and following them with their eyes the entire time he used a lot of really neat mirror shots too which i'm not i haven't fully 
come to grips with what he was doing there. But even when like Edward G. Robinson straightening his tie in the mirror or whatever, um, you just see everybody in the background just staring intently at him. But there's a few times where people are staring at him or Bogart, and the one person in the room who's not will be Bacall, who's looking at uh, Lionel Barrymore or um, you know everybody's looking at Robinson, but she'll be looking at Bogart. And there's a lot of times where she's you know, Bogart's just walking through a hallway or on the dock and she's just staring at him with kind of this doe-eyed wonder. Mm. I do think, I think, I think it's a role that easily could have been given to another actress and not been nearly as powerful. But the more I watch it, the more I realize she didn't have a ton to work with in this film. Right. So let me ask you guys this. When he does all the lines, all the cowardly stuff, all the I don't stick my neck out for anybody, all the, you know, one Rocco more or less isn't worth dying for, do you, did you guys buy all that or do you... I, I always find there are people on two sides of it. You either think he, he's, he is a coward that finally comes to grips with uh, what it means to be a hero at the end, or he's just saying what he needs to say to keep them all alive in the moment uh, until he has a chance to do something. I think he's really, really damaged from the war. And so I think he's frightened, but not a coward. I feel like he's always going against his own grain. And by the end of the mm-hmm. film, he's going with his grain. He's become essentially, mm-hmm. you know, his real self. But until then he's trying to be someone who's more protective and, and who's making, I suppose, the sort of more sensible decision and not be courageous, not be the martyr. But right. I think just because Bogart's goodness shines through the screen, you you're always you always know that the, the man who makes the right decision is there, like or, or will will come out eventually. He's just right. and it's fun watching him get there slowly. Yeah. Have you seen Tokyo Joe or Sirico, either one of those? Have not seen either of them. Okay. It's interesting towards the end of his career, you start to get a little shocked and surprised. Kane Mutiny, have you seen that one? Where he's the <laughs> <laughs> He starts to definitely play against type. And the first time I saw a lot of those movies towards the end, I was like, I, I don't like him anymore. I don't like, but then I just realized, oh, he's actually acting now. He's, he's playing against, you know, what you expect. You know, I watched the first time I watched the King Mutiny, I kept thinking, well, he's going to be right in the end. He wasn't paranoid and crazy. He's going to be right. But at the end of this movie, he's going to be redeemed. And then at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, oh, he, he or treasure of the Sierra Madre, you know, towards the end, you're just going, oh, he's, he's just turned into a horrible person at this point. So yeah, it's interesting to me, you know, that probably the last six, seven, eight movies he made, you really have to start to guard yourself and go, okay, I don't know exactly what to expect. I shouldn't, I shouldn't try to shoehorn him into, well, he's going to be the hero who saves the day because that's not how he's, uh, how it ends up. You can't let his uh, previous films inform the one you're watching. Right. Which is, you know, nearly impossible with somebody who's as iconic as him. But, you know, the other, the other thing with Key Largo that I found interesting that I, you know, I still debate which scenes he's, He's, you know, just putting on a show to keep them all alive in which scenes he's really letting his character's inner turmoil come out. And, you know, there's that, that great scene when they're all in Edward G. Robinson's bedroom um, where he, he's thinking about killing somebody and Bogart talks him out of it by saying, you know, well, if he kills them, he has to kill all of us because we're all witnesses to this. Um, and then he's got that. But then, you know, a few minutes later, he kills the deputy. And nobody says, well, shoot, now he can kill all of us or <laughs> we'll need to kill all of us. Um, and so you think that Bogart would really go, oh, I better. But then later when they're in the bar and the storm's hitting and Bogart's just watching it get to Robinson, he, he just starts needling him about it. You know, why don't you show your gun? Why don't you shoot at it? Why don't you? And then, you know, Robinson pulls his gun out and starts clicking it. And it's luckily the one that doesn't have any bullets in it. You know, just when I think 
oh, he knows what he's doing. He's in control. He's this experienced major from the war. He, he knows how to handle bad guys, you know, and then you get to that moment and you go, oh, I think he's, I think he himself is losing it a little bit. And, you know, I don't, I don't exactly know which moments are genuine and which ones aren't. And, mm. you know, there's several moments where, you know, Bacall's kind of giving a hard time about not standing up for himself or being a coward. And, you know, he's trying to give her the answers he needs while somebody's walking past. You don't know who it is. You just see the shadow and he's almost more concerned about who's walking next to him than the answers he's giving. And, you know, and then the next minute you think, man, if you say one more word, you're going to get shot. You should really just shut up at this moment. And when he gives the, the drink to Gay, that could have been it right there. Robinson's already proven that he's he's got a hair trigger. So I found it interesting. Robinson has that moment where he, he, he kind of gives you Gay's backstory before you know it's Gay. And he says, I, I knew this, you know, she was a wild, thin Irish girl. And I, I, I think he said her name was like Maggie Mooney or something. She even stabbed me once <laughs> and essentially gives, I don't know if you've read this, but it's essentially the backstory to Bogart's wife before Bacall was Mayo Metho. And they had a really tumultuous, crazy relationship, always fighting. And she stabbed him once in the back as he was trying to escape the house. So a lot of people think it's an in-joke with Houston and Bogart that he, he named this character Maggie Mooney. <laughs> You know, to represent Mayo Metho, and they actually fought to the point. And Mayo Metho was also a, a pretty heavy drinker who kind of ruined her own career and had a lot of paranoia and jealousy towards the end and, and tried to kill Bogart a few times in their marital spats. So I thought that was an interesting little little backstory that when you hear it and you know the story, you go, huh. <laughs> that probably, I would imagine, hurt Mayo a little bit at that point. But yeah. Um, you've talked a bit about your top 10 and top five and top three are you willing to share the top three do you have a definitive answer my my absolute favorite is to have and have not i know that it's not his best film but it's the one i go back to the most it's cliched but casablanca's i could have that on a loop all day long in my house there's not a bad scene in that whole film it's just so so much fun to watch and so many great actors in that cast so that would probably be probably be number two, and I'd feel terrible. But then you know, you get like the Return of Doctor X. I'm sure that probably hasn't hit Australia yet, has it? <laughs> We're gonna track it down now. It's, it's definitely not on Blu-ray. <laughs> uh, no, it's not on Blu-ray here either. It, it was it was hard to find. But I think I don't know if they released. It. I think Netflix had it on DVD. That's how I saw it the first time. I think I might have a copy of it now. But I don't know if that'd be number three. But that's another one I go back to a lot just for kicks. Oh, uh, All Through the Night was a, a kind of a gangster comedy that I think is really, really well done and, and not nearly as many people know about it as should, where it's, it's kind of Bogart and uh, his gang against the Nazis during World War II in New York. It's got a, a really, really good cast, and it's really funny. That's probably actually my number three. A few people have asked if I, if I was going to rank him in order online, and mm-hmm. I think it's too much work. And there, there are a lot of them that aren't that great, that it'd just be a, kind of a muddle at the end. I'm a pretty firm believer, though, that no matter how bad a film is, we're just lucky to have it. Whether it's Bogart, Betty Davis, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, any of those, they're not making any more movies. So mm. maybe some rare treasure will show up out of a vault that hasn't been released in a while. But otherwise, just enjoy what you've got. So. I, mean, I don't I don't feel that way about, you know, bad movies today. You know, right. The ones that come out now. <laughs> <laughs> I just think right, right. You know, I, I don't want to offend anybody, but if Batman vs. Superman hadn't happened... <laughs> I'm never going to go, well, Ben Affleck's gone. <laughs> this, this two and a half, three hour slog fest. That makes no sense at the end. But, you know, who knows? Someday, 
someday some of my friends and I do play the game of who, who's the modern day fill in the blank. Mm. Um, and so I have my answer sort of for the modern day Bogart. But I'd be interested to know who you guys think is the, like the, who's the modern day Bogart, who's the modern day Betty Davis, who's the modern day Jimmy Stewart. Monday Bogart. Those uh, are big shoes to fill. I guess we kind of blew them up, don't we, in retrospect? Yeah. Um, DiCaprio? No. He doesn't have that authority that Bogart had. Um, all right, you have to give us yours first. You have to. <laughs> I, well, this is how you he know, disagrees. Jimmy, he Jimmy just Stewart's makes me feel bad. The easy one. Jimmy Stewart's the Tom Hanks for me. Yeah. Tom Hanks, yes. I think one day we'll be looked back on and everybody will go, oh, that guy's an icon. That's he funny did, you say that. Even- In my notes for Rear Window, I really wanted to say Tom Hanks is the modern day equivalent of, of James Stewart. Absolutely. Not, Good call. Not Christopher Reeves? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. made for Make? Yeah, and Daryl Hannah is the uh, Grace Kelly. Oh, that was a rough one. I remember being so excited. I don't know how I got myself so excited. Uh, <laughs> About the TV movie. <laughs> w- women, I think it's a little easier. You know, I think I think Meryl Streep and Glenn Close and some of those will be, mm. you know, people will be rewatching their stuff forever. Bogart's the one, though, I've never gotten a real satisfying response for. I've heard people say George Clooney, and I'm kind of like, yeah, okay. I don't, I don't think yeah. he's ever had his Casablanca moment yet where, you know, some he did something so iconic it'll live forever. Um, and I don't know if it counts or not because he's borderline into that era too. But, you know, somebody like Clint Eastwood, especially in the States, is I think already at a status that you, he's going to be an icon regardless of how crazy his politics get towards the end. <laughs> I think uh, George Clooney's closer to Cary Grant for me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's probably true. But Bogart, I don't really know that there is – one like him. I've, uh, I've gotten criticism for saying Liam Neeson occasionally strikes me as a Bogart type. Oh, yeah. He's definitely come nowhere near the career yet. No. But. We might have to just put it out for our listeners. They can comment on who they think is the modern-day Bogart. Jason, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And um, Anytime. We'll look out for the, uh, the Bogey Film Affair podcast as well because I really did like it. In a way, it is Robinson's film. From the minute that you see him in that bathtub with the cigar dangling out of his mouth, which has become one of the most iconic images of that actor. I mean, I wouldn't say that he kind of chews up the scenery, but he's certainly the loudest, biggest presence in the film. While being the shortest man. <laughs> Why do you think... I mean, Cameron, you said you weren't particularly impressed with him. But... No, no, not, not particularly impressed. It's an interesting performance because he does captivate your attention consistently throughout the entire film, but his character is so kind of weak. Like, in terms of, like, just his moral... I mean, obviously, he's a gangster or whatever, but, like, it just... I don't know, like, just... I find it funny that he's such a pussy in terms of the hurricane. In a weird way, he kind of represents the American dream, but just he just went about it in the way, like, without the bounds of the law. Like, he created his own empire. He made lots of money. He was living a high life. Like, that's what a lot of people want to do, but, I mean... He just did it without the benefit of laws. Yeah, he's like a self-made man, yeah. which is what America says is possible yeah, in exactly. America. Um, but he also, you know, shoots and kills people, so I don't, you know, I don't... And, you know, he's a complete sadist in this film. I like that. I think also he has, at this point, he's been kicked out of America and he's trying to get back. So he's he's obviously got a plan to get back, which I guess is why he's not so overt about a yeah. lot of what he does. I mean, what is he, money counterfeiter? He used to run a lot of stuff during the Prohibition era. 
Yeah, well, look, you know, he was once at the very top of the criminal pecking order in America, and now he's an illegal alien. He can't even really set foot in America. Key Largo kind of acts as this bridge between where he wants to get and where he is. Uh, And this counterfeit money scheme that he's waiting to be collected, you know, that's just, just off the shore, it's his ticket back. At least that's how he sees it. I think what makes him so fascinating in this film is that he's so desperate. He needs this deal to go through. He's not just someone who's living high off the hog anymore. He's got to claw his way back. And that's that vulnerability makes him desperate and more terrifying because you don't know what he will do. You just know he will do anything. It's his shot at, a, at the life he subsequently lost. What are you smiling at me for, Damien? <laughs> off the hog. Is that a thing? I've oh never heard God. that in my life. I saw, your, I saw your smile straight away when that <laughs> escaped Luke's lips. That's interesting, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's a new one. Yeah. High on the hog, high off the hog. High off the hog. Listeners, right in. (laughs) Let me know if I've just coined a new phrase. Um, But look, he's a sadist with an enormous imperative, and that makes him capable of anything. The other thing that's great about Robinson is how he treats Gay, his girlfriend. Gay Dawn, is it? Cameron has just laughed. Her name's Gay. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 I wasn't laughing at that. I was just laughing at the fact that, like, it's great that he treats her so bad. (laughs) We haven't really spoken about her scene. So apparently when she asked Houston how she should play her character, he said, you're the kind of drunken dame whose elbows are always a little too big. Your voice is a little too loud. You're a little too polite. You're very sad, very resigned. Mm -hmm. But she plays it well. She does. And the day that she did her singing, apparently she had told she'd get rehearsals and then he just sprung it on her. So that's why you get this raw, unpracticed version of the song. It's really, really powerful and amazing. And I love that the first time we see Bogart take a real risk is when he gives her her drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was based on the real-life Mulgay or Lova, who was the girlfriend of a mobster named Lucky Luciano who, along with Al Capone, are the inspirations for Johnny Rocco's character. And she, at the time of filming, Gay Orlova was believed to have been executed by a German firing squad. It was later discovered, though, that she survived, and she was known to be living in Paris as late as 1954, trying to join Luciano in Italy. I think it's such a telltale sign of a 40s film when you're rewarded with a drink. <laughs> But she has the shake so badly, you feel really like, oh my god, give this poor bitch oh, a drink. No, no, I was like, give her two. But like, I, I just, I just think it's funny. It's like, it's like, I'm the good guy. Here's your drink. <laughs> You're like desperate for her to get one. I know. Yeah. And how long he holds on a lesser film would have had Edward G. Robinson's character stop her halfway through it. Yep. But he makes her do it because he's a sadist and he needs it. And like the fact they keep cutting to those close ups of the mobsters going, this, like, this is shit. And it keeps keeps going, and it's um it's a lot. So much of acting is showing vulnerability, and that's probably one of the most vulnerable scenes I've probably seen in a long time. So she, you thought she gave the best performance in the movie? I think she gave the most entertaining performance. I was laughing hysterically when she's like screaming at the her. I believe it's a horse that she's listening to on the on the radio. That's so great. Like when she's like, she goes so loud and so just like banging on the table and stuff. But I was, yeah. I was, I was, I found it hilarious. Great that one of the first things that she says is, "Can I pick him or can I pick him?" And then we find out that she spent her whole life having picked Johnny Rocco, yeah, and yeah. that she's wasted her life. So no, you absolutely can't pick them. So, like I've said before, I think Johnny Rocco is the enemy. 
his any and every threat to America that's been holding down the country and the people. So the Great Depression, then the threats from the Germans and the Japanese during the Second World War. And at this point in John Huston's career, he's even the uh, threat of communism or so-called threat of communism. Uh, that would kind of blanket America in the coming years. And that's something that Bogart and Bacall and Houston kind of fought to allow the right for freedom of speech and the protection of the First Amendment. And they were doing that in 1947, so the year before Key Largo came out. And they were, I guess, active opponents of the House Un-American Activities Commission. Yeah, they even formed their own counter-organization, yeah. Defense of the First Amendment. Yeah, exactly, to, to kind of fight. And they said, well, I don't give a damn if anybody is a member of the Communist Party, but I want everybody to have a right to their own beliefs. Yep. And that's essentially what they were. He said he's got no time for communists, he's got no time for um, that kind of belief system, but they have the right to believe it. Yep. I guess, uh, as is stated during the film, the war was not fought just so that they could all come back to America and still have an America run by the Johnny Roccos of the world. But as um, Bogart does say, one Johnny Rocco more or less isn't worth dying for. It's the character that's not important, but what he signifies is important. And so that's why I feel like it's just such a, a an analogy for something so much greater, a lot of this movie, and especially that character. Edward G. Robinson was an outspoken critic of fascism and Nazi Germany. And so his role in Key Lago was probably something personal to him as well. And he'd uh, been playing a game for so long in the 1930s throughout the 1930s and then he was in so many of the major noir films in the 1940s in Double Indemnity uh, The Woman in the Window and Scarlet Street by Fritz Lang and The Stranger by Orson Welles and so each of those four movies he was essentially the victim or at least a good guy and so it's not until Key Largo that we get this interesting combination of the Robinson noir with the typecast Robinson gangster and so I, I find that really interesting. I mean, he went back to being the bad guy and he was a gangster again. And I think that's what makes this role so solid. I think it's one of the most iconic villainous performances. He's devilish, intelligent, articulate and terrifying. In 2003, he was nominated by the AFI for their 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list, but did not make the final cut as one of the 50 villains. And I also find it impossible to believe that he wasn't nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And he was never nominated for an Oscar. And he won one posthumously in 1973, an honorary award. Well, a lot of good that does him. He's just sitting in his grave going, thank you. <laughs> um, I thought and another interesting element to his character is how he responds to McLeod's like, passive aggression. You know how he's constantly sort of indicting him but acting as if he's doing it through this sort of, like, thinly-veiled sense of admiration. Like, he goes, no, Rocco does it this way because Rocco blah, blah, blah. And I love how he just, likes, like, I don't know how to play this. <laughs> like, he's just like, what the fuck is your thing? I think that's a great scene in the movie when uh, Frank is saying, oh, Johnny Rocco, he was one of the greats. Yeah, yeah, I, lo I love that. And I love the fact that everyone knows exactly what he's saying. He's not really on his side. He doesn't no. really love him. I mean, that, yeah. I think that's a big tip-off that he knows what he's doing the whole way. Yeah, 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 for sure. Exactly right. Um, but I just love the fact that Rocco's, he just can't do any, like, he can't uh, process anything that isn't, like, hitting with the sledgehammer. Like, he's kind of like, what are you, you know what I mean? Like, he can tell he's a little bit confused, even though it's, like, so obvious that it's... I like that he can't say anything without putting C at the end. We're going downstairs, see? <laughs> <laughs> That's like the classic noir thing. There, so the guy who's, uh, his character's name is Edward Toots Bass. I think they call him Toots. 
and uh, he was played by an actor, Harry Lewis. He's the guy that is reading the comics and is always laughing inappropriately. I love his character. Yeah. He apparently on set was John Huston's scapegoat. So John Huston would just agitate him, really make demands of him, make him feel like he wasn't doing good enough, push, push, push him. And uh, yeah, he ended up being quite memorable in the film. It ended up being really the only memorable thing that that. Glad you didn't did. say that. Oh, he ended up killing himself two years later. No, he didn't. I don't care. He um he died in a hurricane though. <laughs> he didn't really. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was the whole um, geography of the Florida Keys. I got obsessed with this. Like, I watched a 45-minute document, uh, 45 minute documentary on the building of the Overseas Highway. You actually watched that documentary you sent me? 45 minutes of it, yeah, oh. I did. I'll be honest with you, it's so interesting. <laughs> but but the metaphor of the idea that these things are the last beacon of America, you know, like the, and the fact that it's sort of just joined together by a fine line, I think is really interesting and kind of speaks a little bit... Uh, to larger themes in the film about they're holding on to American values but by the skin of their teeth a little bit. Yeah. I, I, just, I just found it really interesting, like, and the person who built the highway is, was just a millionaire that just wanted to do something. Um, he wasn't for the government. He, he funded it through his own money. I think it was $35 million in 1900, I want to say, six. And then he went through all this thing and then that got destroyed by a hurricane. The rail, like, the railroad got... $35 uh, million dollars in 1906. Yeah, it's... Yeah. No. Yep. Really? Yep. And it's interesting that that area is really prone to hurricanes. I think there were two hurricanes in 1948 when Key Largo was released. It's a great metaphor, not only because it represents, as you say, like holding on to the vestiges of American values, but also it acts as this access point for uh, Rocco to get mm. back into America. So, you know, it's perfect setting for this film. And Leslie Brill, who we interviewed in his book, he says that it's almost as prominent a protagonist as yeah. Bogart in the film. You can't you can't separate the location from the film. The only reason he had to shoot this on the soundstage is because Sierra Madre ran uh, so much over budget, and um, the Warner said he couldn't shoot it on location. And they used footage from a Ronald Reagan movie for the storm. But it's, some of that surely has to be models as well. I saw it, like I thought there was a couple of shots that I thought this is possibly models, but it was. Such good model work. Yeah, I, I would say that some of it was, yeah. Because yeah. it was too clear to be stock footage. Well, I guess all of the stuff with the hotel would be. The interesting part about the bridge, because I'm just apparently an architect fan now. So it's based on that September 2 hurricane of 1935, a lot of what's, you know, based around it. And obviously that's the one that Temple speaks about in the film. Yeah, it's mentioned. And um, he says, I think I think he mentions 800 deaths, but the real estimation is between 400 and 600, so they kind of bloated it for the film, I guess. Well, 400 or 600 wasn't good enough. It needed to be 800. <laughs> it needed to be 800, yeah. But what's really interesting is about a lot of those deaths that occurred were World War I veterans who were put on this thing called the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was they were, uh, a lot of World War I vets were protesting to get their a very peaceful protest to try and get their retirement early um their retirement fund like they, they i think it was a dollar for every day spent overseas and a dollar for every day spent uh back home but it would it would only get paid out in 1940 something so it was a dollar a day a dollar a day for yeah but but, but both like away from home and at home is what i'm saying as well so a dollar yeah. a day wherever you were yeah cheers and <laughs> But I just thought that was interesting. It's like a lot of like that hurricane that hit, and like a lot of those deaths were World War One veterans. So I think that's a really interesting kind of 
and sad and, and really really sad because they and, and they were given jobs purely as a form of payment to do this huge um this huge thing well there were no gangsters in the play originally i don't think no they were mexican bandidos which are gangsters just with burritos John Huston had a very successful year in 1948. His film was nominated for Best Picture and won for Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, and Huston himself won for Best Director. Of course, this was all for Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Key Largo was nominated and won in Best Supporting Actress for Claire Trevor. Uh, Best Picture that year went to Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. And the other nominees along along with Sierra Madre were Johnny Belinda... The Snake Pit, starring Olivia de Havilland, and The Red Shoes, from Powell and Pressburger. So, I guess it's not surprising, given that set of nominees, that Key Largo didn't receive as much recognition as it possibly could have, especially given that John Huston's other film was so well received. The top-grossing film of 1948 was The Red Shoes, with 5 million. Sierra Madre came in fourth, with 4.31 million, and Key Largo came in twelfth, with 3.29 million. And Houston Sierra Madre, as we said, was shot on location, had gone over budget at an estimated cost of $3 million, um, and then it did recoup that cost, but uh, not as much as uh, they probably hoped. So Jack Warner insisted that Key Largo be shot on a soundstage. The exterior storm scenes were from the Ronald Reagan movie Night Unto Night. So the budget was able to be kept pretty low, and the combination of Bogart, Bacall, and Robinson, as well as a pretty interesting, captivating, enthralling story, made this a commercially viable venture. And contemporary reviews are pretty difficult to come by for films from the 1940s, but uh, Key Largo holds a 97% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And Harrison's Reports published a review of the film at the time of its release, calling it a top-notch gangster melodrama and praising Claire Trevor's work. They said she walks away with the acting honours in what is undoubtedly the best work of her career. They went on to praise the film's photography and score, saying that the mounting tension created by the menacing gangsters is heightened by the terrifying sweep and fury of a Florida hurricane, which has been caught by the camera in expert fashion. Variety magazine published a review at the time of the film's release saying that the Key West locale is an aid in stressing tension that carries through the plot. The atmosphere of the deadly, still heat of the keys, the threat of the hurricane, and a menace of merciless gangsters make the suspense seem real, and Houston's direction stresses the mood of anticipation. So what would we all rate it? We can do the quiz first. Okay, we'll do the quiz first, guys. Guys, hold your hold on to your hats. <laughs> Cameron's gonna fuck this up. Damien. Oh. <sighs> You mentioned that the shots of the hurricane in the film were taken from a Warner Brothers melodrama, Night Unto Night, who was the star of that film. Ronald Reagan. (gasps) One for Damien. No fucking way. He said it in his thing. Uh, Well, you know. Well, look, I'd done my research. Okay, uh, Cameron. Yeah, Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Frank and George served in the World War II Battle of San Pietro in Italy. What was the significance of the battle for John Huston? Uh, I'm... I'm guessing, but I would say that he was there as a photographer during the war. Like, as a film... Like, I know he was in it as a, a cameraman or whatever, so I don't... I, d- I don't know the specifics, but I would... No, that's my guess. Damien? That would have been my guess too. No, The Battle of San Pietro was one of the three documentary films made by John Huston for the US Army. That's what Cameron said. He just said he was a photographer there. 
No, this is like filmmaker. That's what you said, isn't it? Oh, I just meant cameraman yeah. in general, I guess. Okay. I think one, one, yay! Damien, what festival in Key Largo begins on October 18th of this year? Uh, the Humphrey Bogart Film Festival. Oh my goodness, you're all doing so well. And uh, feature... Don't, don't try and... This is where he tries to act really clever. But if you're in Key Largo, I guess, people, go and see the Humphrey Bogart Film Festival. Or don't. They never got back to me for an interview. So, yeah, (laughs) we're not bitter. Cameron, name the two gangsters upon which the character of Johnny Rocco is based. Okay, uh... Al Capone and Lucia... I don't, I don't, I, Lucille Ball. <laughs> something Luci, Luciano. Something. Yeah, Lucky Luciano. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Damien, what is the name of the song that Gay Dawn sings for a glass of scotch? Moanin' Low. Moanin' Low. Moanin' Low. And Cameron, last question. So far, Cameron, you're on... Uh, Two with one question left, and Damien's on three. The Seminoles, which were a group of the Keys' native population, they feature prominently in the film. What distinguishes them in terms of the screen credits? As in, uh, can you use that in a sentence? Um, <laughs> uh, I believe I did. As in how it's, as in how they're credited in the film. You mean? Yeah, it's something distinguishes them in terms of screen credits. Did they put feathers before? Um, I oh, they would in a current film. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I've got no idea. They don't have any screen credits, even the ones oh, that speak. That's worse than feathers. Which says something about kind of post-colonial attitudes at that time that they weren't even credited or billed. I think that's a trick question because you said, "How was it different in the credit?" I said, "What like, distinguishes them in terms of the screen?" There's no distinguishment if they're not in it. I think that the, the role that they're given is actually not not terrible. Yeah, yeah. I think I think they they all seem pretty well um, rounded for for the small bits of screen time that they have. And Not only that, but they're, they're also kind of virtuous uh, a lot of the time. Well, they're humanised nicely, but they're also victims, very yeah. much victims. All right. So, out of five, um, I was uh, fluctuating. After I watched, I gave it four and a half, and then I kind of thought I wouldn't really change anything, so I gave it five. I really loved it, Cameron. I gave it four and a half. Yeah, okay. I gave it five as well. I think we probably all could have gone four and a half. When you put it up against the African Queen, mm. you can yeah. see the African Queen is a five-star movie, and so it finds it hard, it makes it harder to justify that Key Largo is a five-star movie. But at the same time, I mean, I, I greatly enjoyed it. I love Edward G. Robinson. I love the, the photography. I love the story. I love the setting. And so there's really nothing I'd change about it. And I think it's I think it is a nice optimistic ending. It is a movie that it earned an optimistic ending. Mm. So this brings us to the end of the first season of Celluloid Junkies. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and thank you for listening to any of our previous episodes too. If you haven't listened to them, they're all available at celluloidjunkies.com or on the Apple Podcasts app or you can just search for Celluloid Junkies in uh, a podcast app on Android. We've had great fun doing this podcast and we'll be back in a couple of months with season two, but we'd love to hear from you in the meantime. By the time you hear this, we'll have a post up on Facebook with a small recap of the first season of this show. So please comment on there and let us know what you liked and didn't like from our first season. Any suggestions for improvements we could make, anything at all. We don't put ads in this podcast. We do it purely because it's an enjoyable experience and we love talking about movies. So what's really important to us is hearing from our listeners. So if you do enjoy the show, or if you don't, please take a few minutes out of your day to make contact with us, and we'd really love to hear from you. Just search for Celluloid Junkies Film Podcast on Facebook and you'll find us. 
So if you've got a particular movie that you want us to consider, don't be afraid to mention it to us on Facebook. We do love getting the suggestions and we will continue to pick somewhat offbeat choices from some great directors, as well as mixing it up with some different stuff in season two. We'd like to say thanks to everyone who's contributed their time to the show in some way. Cassandra Kane for guest hosting on Baby Jane. Mark Nichols for his insight into Martin Scorsese and Goodfellas. Thomas Claggett for appearing on our French Connection episode. Taja Lane and Udranka Skorankapov for appearing on our episode about The Wrestler and to Bloomsbury Publishing for promoting that episode. To John Faywell and Murray Pomerantz for chatting to us about Rear Window. And to Leslie Brill and Jason Taylor for joining us today to discuss Key Largo. And also a personal thanks to Luke and Cameron, who are always fun to work with on projects like this. I'd estimate that we put in a combined 40 or 50 hours of work to bring you this 90-minute podcast, but it's all worth it. Finally, join us again in August for the start of Season 2, where we'll be taking a look at Dario Argento's seminal 1977 Italian horror film, Suspiria.